Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Bridge Podcast. Hope you're enjoying it so far. Thanks again for all those of you who've got in touch to say you found it really enjoyable. Remember, you can get in touch with the show at uh, podcast.bridgechapel.co.uk with comments or suggestions or questions. And we'd love to hear from you today. I'm joined by Paul Knox. Hi, Paul. Morning, Parky. But only a few people are going to get that reference. So, for the, the younger members of the audience, for years there was a talk show late on BBC, I mean, what was it with Michael Parkinson, and it was, I mean, absolutely brilliant. I have to say, you're, you're doing quite well filling these <laughs> shoes. Thanks very much. <laughs> so, it's great to have you here. Thanks for, for coming in. Thanks for your time in this crazy time. Um, you know what? I didn't have one of my biscuits. Well, they're over there. You can get them at any time. <laughs> Hazel told me to bring them especially for you as well. I'll have to eat them, sorry. <laughs> oh. So just tell us a little bit about what you do, what your job is, yeah. um, and how the pandemic situation is affecting okay. what you're doing. That would be really good. So I work in the university. If my official title, I think, is Reader in Vision Science. Nobody knows what a reader is. I was just going to say. Yeah, so a reader is like a lazy professor. Okay. Not bright enough or hardworking enough to get a full professor's post. But above a doctor. But no, Well, not quite, so it goes... Well, of course, it goes student, yeah, PhD student, yeah, postdoc, lecturer, senior lecturer, reader, professor. Okay. And I, so I've got to read and I've got stuck because I'm, I'm too lazy probably. So I work in, um, uh, so I was about to tell you where I worked in, but the university is actually or the, the, medical school and the, those bits attached to it. I've just undergone a big reorganization the university yeah. so i'm now in the institute of life course and medical studies i think it is right. it's called uh, i was in a research institute called aging and chronic disease but my department is eye and vision science which is really the bit of the university where the ophthalmologists live and people interested in eyes although i'm a bit of a fraud <laughs> i'm not really that interested in eyes i'm interested in brains Okay. But a lot of my research has been around measuring eye movement to understand what's going on inside people's heads. And then because I was hanging about with all these ophthalmologists who I hope aren't listening to this, um, I had to pretend to get interested in eyes. So we now do a lot of research on detection of eye disease using vision tests. So, you know, you'll be familiar with the letter chart. Yeah. So that's just one way of testing vision. And it has lots of things it doesn't tell you. So... Some people in Bridge, I think, have done this experiment. We, for example, have a test where you have to detect a deformed circle. So we call that test a bumpy circles test. No. Uh, and your ability to do this is affected if you've got disease at the back of your eye, is what oh, I'm right, okay. So we do that kind of very clinically orientated stuff. We do it in the Royal, in um, a bit of the Royal called the Clinical Eye Research Centre. And then I do a lot of eye movement research, which takes place actually in the university itself. So... Your job has some interface with the public. Yeah. It has some interface with students, students teaching yeah. and yeah. then some research that is ongoing. Is that is that right? Well, not at the minute. So not yeah, in, yeah, 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 in theory. <laughs> so that sounds like it's fairly hectic, fairly busy. It is quite busy. And it, but the other thing about it is, of course, really varied. Mm. So you might be doing, I don't know, an academic advisor meeting with a medical student and then you'll be sitting in a committee meeting, you know, postgraduate committee in the institute. 
and then you'll have a participant coming into the lab for testing and then you'll have a meeting with a PhD student to go through a chunk of tortured prose. Um, so it's it's endlessly varied and that's actually part of the attraction. And yeah, of course, yeah. I get to decide really, you know, what I do and when I do it. So it's quite a quite a privileged existence in uh, lots of ways. And what's the um, teaching demand? So I teach... Um, undergraduate doctors, people doing the MBCHB, um, usually around research schools. We have a thing called the Research and Scholarship Programme. So I have about four or five first-year medics and four or five second-year medics who do sessions with me, usually around, you know, researching the literature and writing about that in a sensible way. Uh, I'm programme director for our master's course, the, the uh, Master of Research, the MRes in Clinical Sciences. Um so that involves both delivery, but quite a lot of admin uh, around oh, keeping yeah, it kind yeah. of showing the road. Lots of admin, lots of admin, <laughs> lots of paperwork. Um, of course, we're quite busy with that at the minute because all our teaching has now moved online, and did just before the lockdown. In fact, because it was clear the way things Something were going. Coming. Yeah, yeah. So the university decided quite early on that we'd stop all face-to-face -face mm -hmm. interaction with students. So then there was a big panic to get material online now we always did online teaching and provided materials online extent. yeah so we've got a, a virtual learning environment it's called yeah, we have yeah, had for yeah. years um but we had to put everything online learn how to use zoom yeah. we've all become everyone familiar. loves zoom now don't they <laughs> uh well it's like a whole new language you know i yeah. zoomed my mother yesterday yeah, and things it? like this oh, okay um <laughs> uh microsoft teams is the other yes, big one we, yeah. we are using so delivering sessions to students with that they're quite good though because the key thing we want to maintain is that interactivity yeah, yeah. with students because actually particularly in science that interactivity that feeling of community is really important fundamentally you can't do science in a uh you know just you yourself sitting in your front room in front of a computer you might be learning about science, but that's not doing it. Particularly the doing of it is done in teams. Mm -hmm. And you need that spark. You need that community mm -hmm. really to keep the whole thing rolling forward. So that will be a struggle going forward because it's clear yeah. we're not going to be back to normal. And, well, our MRS starts mid-September. And that's not going to happen, do you think? No, it will happen. But again, online. it will almost certainly start, on, we think, online in its entirety. Um, what do you think? Do you think you'll? When do you think you'll go back to kind of you know being in the building, lectures, students coming in? So certainly, from the teaching point of view, I I think we're probably looking at the beginning of next year, um, okay. and even then, we're not talking about students sitting in serried ranks, all scribbling away enthusiastically. Not that they ever did. There'll be new guidelines, and I think we'll have blended teaching for a long time. Wow. Um, on the research side, uh, so some labs haven't closed, of course. The university's kept open a lot of labs doing COVID-19 research, mm -hmm. a lot of COVID-19 research going on in the university. People will have seen the news last week. Our neighbours along LSTM are involved in one of the big vaccine trials now. They're recruiting healthcare workers for uh, the trial of the Oxford yeah, vaccine. Yeah, yeah. Um, labs will gradually open up. You know, the management side of the university is looking at how to do that practically over the next few weeks, but they won't be anything like they were. So the, the capacity will be right down. 
there'll be much stricter supervision arrangements for the PhD students. Um, there'll be sort of various hygiene requirements now. It's going to be like a whole new, whole new, a new normal, isn't it? And I think one of the worries is that it will, there'll be a lot of pressure to fundamentally change, particularly the teaching side of the university. Um, there will be some pressure because all the universities now are under severe financial um, constraints, mm -hmm. big worries about exactly how many students are going to turn up mm -hmm. in September, October. Um, so that and how idea they're of going just to turn up as well, I suppose. Yeah, just teaching them all online much cheaper. Let's close down a lot of buildings yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, sure. There will be an element of that. That, in my view, would kind of be a bit of a mistake. Um, I think again, you need that community, that interactivity. Some of that can be done online, but it be not all of it. Um, you know, students want that kind of completely online experience. You can get it now. You can do whole degrees yeah, online. You wouldn't come to uni in that sense, would you? Wouldn't be the same experience. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I don't think in a funny way it would be as good an education, which is about much more than just Academics, learning stuff and yeah. spitting it out on right yeah, paper yeah. and exam and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. But I think there will be, almost certainly, there will be permanent changes. Mm. Um, just the way we do business will change. And maybe not just for the university, maybe for us as a church. Yeah, sure, yeah. Certainly, yeah, you know, yeah. we're all coping with gathering in our front rooms at half past ten on a Sunday morning yeah. or quarter past eleven or quarter yeah, to twelve. Whatever. Whenever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, you, certainly, I hope we, we get back to kind of meeting in the Morris Hall in our case. Yeah. It's going to be a while. Yeah. Uh, and certainly at the start, you know, well, you guys will know this because you'll be working through some of the implications. Of this. So it's going to be tricky for a long time, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably until a vaccine comes. And you see, that's the other thing. We're all hoping for this vaccine. There are no guarantees there ever will be a vaccine. That's right, yeah. Um, it was interesting. I just don't know. I know when Dave was in, we talked about the vaccine and just the scale of it, yeah. of what's required, is mind-blowing, really. Yeah. You kind of think, oh, yeah, we'll just get a vaccine and that'll be fine. No, the practicalities are a just big saying, challenge. Scaling up even just to to vaccinate the over I think he said the over 70s or yeah. something, was was 10 million yeah just just for that one one demographic group it's incredible yeah. scale and, and you might not be talking UK, about one injection a series even a vaccine that works really well you may be talking about you know an initial dose and then boosters no or you might be talking about something every six months Can, ongoing yeah possibly uh, we just don't know because a new virus nobody knows um, wow. it's interesting isn't it I mean the whole world has changed now yeah, sure. Back in That's January, true. you know, so we read we read the Bible and we read about plagues in mm -hmm. the Bible and big effects. So you've got those awful plagues in Revelation and they're global and all around. We did we'd all sit there saying, Well, this is a nice picture, this is a nice metaphor. And here we are, you know, um uh, how many hundred thousand dead more are gonna die? Uh complete disruption. An interesting thing is Say it quietly, this isn't that dangerous a, a virus. Mm. And yet look at the disruption mm. we've got. Mm. Um, and the world, literally the world has changed. Yeah, it, it, it's unbelievable. Hazel and I were saying in the car the other day, it is, I was talking about, we were talking about climate change. Yeah. And it shows what people, or what, as a culture, we can do yeah. if we're sufficiently motivated to do it um and it is it is interesting thinking about 
and we we don't need to go here now and maybe for a different day but you know the 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 wider biblical spiritual yeah. implications of what what should we be this learning, is no what surprise to providence about. that's right yeah yeah and you know i don't I, I'm I'm uncomfortable with using the language of judgment yeah. about this because I don't have you and I don't have the insight of an Ezekiel or an Amos, mm-hmm. and I think it's important we, yeah, we don't we should claim be very that. Careful there. Yeah. But that said, you know we live in a fallen world. Um, it's a world with a lot of bad things happening in it that that we know outrages the Lord. Mm. Um, we will reflect maybe in the future about just what this means I don't think we can say that here now it would probably be a mistake to try and say yeah, that here now yeah, yeah. but there'll be a lot of reflection to do and there's lessons for us to learn yeah well. a year two years five years we'll all look back won't we mm-hmm. it's, you know an older generation look back to the war that's right yeah we'll look, look back, back to, to the it. pandemic that's right yeah, yeah that will yeah. be our thing yeah. and we'll say James how's the world changed that's right yeah in an instant yeah from that experience and learning from what they've been through in their life. So let's go back, take us back to oh, can I remember the, the origins of, of Paul Knox. <laughs> so I come from the east end of Glasgow, uh, an area called Denison, um, famous for producing Lulu. Uh, in fact, I was at school with Lulu's Lulu. wee brother. Oh, right, okay. The yeah. Lulu. The Lulu, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I would sing the song, but I won't. No, please don't. <laughs> uh, Michelle Moen, the... Underwear millionaires who's now sits in the House Lord. She comes from Denson as well. No way. Um, so there are famous people who yeah, come from Denson. And Paul Knox. <laughs> and Paul Knox. East end of Glasgow. Grew up in a tenement. One T- brother. Tenement. So what's a tenement? So a tenement is uh, well, it's kind of it's like a block of flats, but it's lots of flats all really close together, street after street after street, only yeah. four stories high. Yeah. So a block of flats we we imagine is kind of kind of square and tall. Whereas tenements were, were shorter Short and longer. Short squat, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just like, rows and rows and yeah, rows yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't think I've ever seen them in England, actually. I don't think that... Because you have... It, it, you In England, <laughs> there are the, the back-to-backs and the up-and-downs and the terraces. Yes. It's not really a terrace. So Garston under the bridge. Oh, yeah. Back in the day, um, when I was, I don't know, 8, 15. So it's a long time ago. But as you go under the bridge... Yeah. And that was that new estate, and you turn right. They had them down there. Oh, that was okay. all, all down that side, yeah. down the right hand side. There was those tenement blocks, yeah. the tennies we we would call them. So it's not salubrious, is it? No, I mean, but you know, you're growing up there. It's all you know. It's all you know. We yeah. played in That's the street. Yeah. Um, so when's this? 
so this would be the 1960s. I was born in 62. Um, uh, my brother's... Um, that's a good question. What is the gap between us? That's terrible. You'll be asking me next the name, names of my children. <laughs> <laughs> um, couple of years maybe between us. Just the two of you. Yeah, just two of us. Shared the room. Uh, mm -hmm. So the, our, we, we lived in the top flat tenement. My granny and my grandpa, my mum's mum and dad, they lived in the first floor mm -hmm. tenement. Um, uh, so the top floor's four, isn't it? Then a gap. Then then the gap of two, then your mum and dad. There's the four floors in the tenement. Yeah. yeah. So ground one, two, three. We were on three. Granny and grandpa were on one. Right, yeah. Um, shared a room with my brother till I was 17. Till and we you're there moved. with your mum and dad? With your mum and dad in yeah, the tenement? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it would be... You know, two bedrooms, a hall. So you walk in the door off the, the tenement landing, there'd be a hall, and off yeah. of that you'd have the kitchen where we kind of lived. The the living room that we only went into on special occasions. <laughs> Mum's, mum and Dad's bedroom, our bedroom, the bathroom, and that that would be it. But, you know, it, you're growing up, it's yeah. all you know. You don't know that there are things like houses. Yeah. Well, we did know there were things like houses, but the posh people stayed in the houses, and they were all south of the river. Okay. Um, so what did your mum and dad do? So my dad was a joiner. Uh, in his younger days, he worked in the building trade on building sites. And by the time we came along, he was a maintenance joiner in RW Forsyth, which was one of the big department stores in the centre of Glasgow. Mum worked in uh, the council as an administrator. Eventually, she went into the education department in what at the time was Strathclyde Regional mm -hmm. Council. Uh, she also did a university, de university degree. Uh, so she did a degree the hard way. Yeah. Um, uh, so they both worked. And really my granny would make his tea when we came in from school. We'd have our tea in our kitchen. And then my dad and my grandpa would come in for work. My grandpa worked in uh, Laird's making a big factory that made uh, labels. Uh, he worked in that for years. Uh, so my father and my grandfather would have their tea together after we'd eaten. And it's interesting, I don't I don't know when my mother ever had her tea. <laughs> I always remember my father and my grandfather mm -hmm. sitting at the table while me and my brother would be sitting somewhere else in the kitchen. We'd all be in the kitchen around the, right. the coal fire. Um, and the big, the big conundrum for me growing up was how could my father and my grandfather be brothers? Because they'd sit at the table and one of them would say to the other one, Pass me the sauce, brother. Aye, no problem, brother. Here you are. Um, and for years, it, it took me years to work that one out, and it was because they were both believers, and oh, right, that okay. was just how they talked. Yeah. Um, we would we would occasionally have walks inflicted on us. My father's a great walker, and he would go walks with my grandfather, and they always maintained he knew where they were. I was never sure because these walks sometimes could be quite long, but they would play Bible games on them. Um. Uh, you know, things like, you know, you'd have, someone would think of a character and then the other one would ask them yes or no questions to work out right, who the character, yeah, yeah, yeah. that, that yeah, yeah. And they would do all this kind of carry on or they'd discuss sort of abstruse points of theology, at least it seemed like that to me yeah, at the time. Yeah. I always tried to avoid going on the walks. Did you? Because I knew they would be long and <laughs> not <boring>. very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about that. A, real, a really good picture you've painted. Let's talk about how, what, Church is like in your life from okay. in in your in your memory that you always gone to church yeah. and it was at a big part of your life, granny and, and yeah. Yeah. grandpa. So let's go back before me and my brother arrived. Yeah, my father 
came from quite a rough background in the east end of Glasgow, down by the river. Uh, bombed during the war. Uh, it's quite a lot of devastation. Quite a poor, rough area. When he was a teenager, he became a Christian through the youth work in a little brethren assembly called Porch Hall, again in the east end of Glasgow, uh, you know, within walking distance of where we lived. And it's always seemed to me funny, uh, funny in the way that he sort of swapped his family for the assembly, for the church, because religion was for posh people and we're not posh. Right. I, it always seemed to me there was a kind of element of that. Um, and so the transformation in him as a young man was just so complete that, you know, he just became... It, so the kind of family environment, the work environment was no longer his environment. Church was... And he's this is the what he's told you. Yeah. Yeah. Um so, you know, life revolved around the assembly. So it was it would be smaller. By the time we came along, it was really quite small, maybe about I don't know, maybe thirty or forty people, maybe slightly more than that. Not many young people. But life really re revolved around that. Sunday morning was always the Lord's Supper, open worship. Sunday afternoon was always Sunday school, and then the Bible class. My memory of Bible classes, my father took about 12 years to go through Genesis. <laughs> Good man. I may be being slightly unfair to him uh, on that. Um, Sunday night was the gospel meeting. Uh, actually, my father and my grandfather, they visited hospitals rather than go to the gospel meeting. I think they found the gospel meeting uh, not that interesting. In fact, one of my jobs, when there was a fifth Sunday in the month, mm. They wouldn't go to the hospital. They would go to the gospel meeting. And my job was to sit next to my grandfather and keep him awake. <laughs> keep prodding him. <laughs> um, so life very much... Such a huge part of, of your yeah, life as a family. Yeah. Um, and that was fine. I went to Sunday school. And then when I was 10, my Sunday school teacher... don't know if you remember the little chick booklets. These were little, like, comic strips booklets right. based on Bible themes and my Sunday school teacher or one of the leaders gave me the one about the beast So I kind of knew all this, but but this sowed that thought in my head. If Jesus came back, what would happen to me? Because mm. I was pretty sure that my mum and dad would be raptured. So obviously we're now talking premillennial yeah, dispensationalists. Yeah, 
steady. <laughs> Let's just stick to your story. <laughs> so I knew they would go. Yeah, and you'd be left. But I was pretty sure I would be left. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it didn't freak me out. I don't remember it really freaked me out, but then what happened was shortly thereafter, for some reason I woke up in the wee small hours. It was dark. Uh, my brother and I slept in bunk beds at the time. I was the oldest, so I was in the top bunk. Mm-hmm. And I looked over. He was obviously still there, but I just couldn't get rid of the thought. What What? what, what if Jesus had come back? So I tiptoed out of our bedroom across the hall, put my ear to my mum and dad's bedroom door. Couldn't hear anything. But you're uh, 10, aren't you? I'm 10. Yeah, wow. So I opened the door, and of course, as we all know, the rapture hasn't happened. Of course, some people <laughs> yeah. don't think it will happen at all. Let's not go into that. No. Nope. Um, but it was enough for me to go back to my bed and do what I'd always been told to do, invite Jesus into my heart. Mm. And that's literally the kind of language, I can't remember now exactly what I said, yeah, but that's yeah. literally all I did. I invited them into my heart because I wanted to be sure if he came back, I was going, I wanted an eternal insurance policy. Yeah, And it was no more profound than that. It, mm. it really, in a sense, wasn't greatly profound. I don't think the next morning... My life was revolutionised. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, yeah. I wasn't to be found drunk in the gutter yeah. most nights at ten. Yeah, yeah. Um, at ten years of age. Because Matt was talking about that. Um, yeah. When you when yeah, you brought right. up in that environment, you kind of look at other dramatic conversion stories, and there's a little. I don't know. You're yeah. a, bit, a bit intimidated by yeah, them. Yeah, and a bit envious in a funny envy, way. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah, I heard Matt. And I but think, it's a real blessing, though, isn't it? To yeah, be yeah, yeah. And and being brought up in a Christian, in a home, Christian home, I w- yeah. I think the older I get, the more appreciative. The more appreciate I appreciate that. Um, the stresses and strains that would put on our parents, the worries for them as believers, because now as a parent, I've got you know you've you, yeah. you've got these worries as well you yeah. worry about your kids if you could choose for your kids you would you can't yeah. god doesn't have grandchildren that's yeah. not how it works um so you you appreciate these kind of things as you get older but no I, there was no great transformation and I, I think matt said something similar it was when i got to secondary school and i started going to the scripture union group mm-hmm. and i started having to defend my faith to my friends i had to work out what had happened, what I believed, how I should live. And how you should respond to And how I should questions. respond to the, you know, the quips and the, yeah, yeah. the attacks and stuff. Um, and that was really important, actually. And the other good thing about SU was it meant I began interacting with people from all sorts of very different Christian backgrounds. In the school, is this? In school and then outside the school. Scripture Union camps were really important for me. Right. We had a big monthly rally called Interalia uh, that I got involved in. Um, there was also a, I don't know how I got into this, but there was a joint youth fellowship in our area, and it was actually joint between two of the churches of Scotland and the local Baptist church. Now, you, the background I come from, uh, you know, I don't think anybody would ever say this, but there was an idea we're we're the real Christians. Mm. I mean, after all, we sang from the believers' hymn book. Oh well, there you go. Uh, whereas everybody else presumably sang from the unbelievers' hymn book. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, nobody articulated it like that, but there was a kind of strain of that. Yeah, and yeah. these, our assembly wasn't one of the exclusive brethren assemblies. You know, it was one of what's called the open assemblies. Um, and I don't want to sound too hard people, brilliant people, really genuine people, straightforward working class people, very straightforward approach to life. In a funny way, a brilliant place to grow up. But there was that kind of strain there, you know, these folk, 
can't really be Christian. So these, these churches kind of working together is odd? Well, um, it was maybe odd. It wasn't that odd. Um, but not what you'd expect, maybe. But it wouldn't involve the assembly I went to as an assembly in any shape, manner or form. Um, but okay. somehow I fell in with these characters. Yeah. Um, because uh, there were no other young people. How old are you now? One, so this would be 15, 16. Okay. Um, so I did an involvement with SU, led my first tent at an SU camp when I was 16. And that was really pivotal, actually, because two of the boys in the tent were converted. And I had a, you know, I, I hesitate, to say, hesitate to say a role in that because it was the Holy Spirit that did it. But, you know, as as a tent leader, I was involved in that. And yeah. seeing God work in other people yeah. close up like that showed me the seriousness is the wrong idea. I don't want to, it to make a... It was a really happy yeah, thing. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. But kind of just how profound it is mm-hmm. when God changes people. And I, I, that summer, in fact, I went back and I went to see the elders and asked to be baptised. And funnily enough, my brother had just been to see them to ask if you could get baptised as well. So I was baptised the same night as my brother. But not that wasn't a planned... That was not discussed between at all. you two. Not, no, not planned at all. I maybe when I get back, my dad said to me that my brother had asked for. I can't remember now, and and that was part of the stimulus. But no, it was it was just it, well, wasn't coincidence, was it? it no, was, um, sure. One of these God instances. Yeah. And I get baptized the same night as my brother, and then came Amazing. into assembly fellowship, as we would say. So became yeah. a member. Yeah. So I could do things like take part in the worship. Yeah. One of the big mistakes I made was I'd come back from camp that year having bought a living Bible. Okay. And I stood up at the Lord's Supper and read a passage from this. Didn't go down well. And in fact, one of the older men came up to me afterwards and in complete seriousness said to me, Look, Paul, if the authorised version and the Believer's Hymn Book were good enough for the Apostle Paul, they should be good enough for you. And he he honestly wasn't joking. No way. Um, so yeah, interesting. But that was that exposure to believers from other backgrounds. I think was really yeah, important. And yeah. then it got worse. Uh, when I got to university, so I went to university when I was seventeen. I didn't do six years at school; I only did five, which in those days you could do in Scotland, because the main exam is the higher. Yeah, so you didn't do A-levels, you did hires. We did hires in those days. You could stay on and do sixth-year studies, but I just went straight to university at 17. Just turned 17, in fact. There's a big church on University Avenue in Glasgow called Wellington Church, the Church of Scotland. Uh, I was just going to say, did you stay at home and and go? Which was very much a tradition. That was just what happened. uh, Particularly in Scotland. And what's your brother doing? He was still at school at that point, right? And okay. he eventually did an apprenticeship in Yarrow's shipbuilders. Yeah. Uh, so he's like my dad. He's very practical. Yeah. I'm completely useless. Um, I can. I'm great at the ideas. Completely useless and deliberate. My dad, and my brother can do anything. Decorate houses, put yeah. in showers. I mean, my father. We had a Morris Thousand Traveller when we were growing up. Don't know if you remember that. Yeah, I do. It's yeah, like the Morris Miner with a wooden back end. Yeah. yeah. And Dad's big job in the summer was painting the woodwork, and then we would all decamp to Girvan for our Glasgow fortnight holiday. Six of us in the car: <laughs> no Mum and way. Dad, Granny and Grandpa, me and my brother in the in boot, the traveller in in the back of the traveller wow. with the luggage. Um, Fun times. Anyway, back to Wellington Church. Yeah, very liberal ministry. Uh, so it's um, a contrast to what you've come from. Oh, completely. But within it, 
a, a group of very dedicated young people wanting to reach others with gospel. So people who are, you know, very keen uh, to share the gospel. And I get involved with them. And what are you studying at uni? So I eventually my degree was in physiology. Okay. Uh, first year was physics, chemistry and biology. I yeah, managed to it. pass physics. I've, to this day, I don't know how I managed it. In fact, I get exemptions, as they're called, in the first two, the biology and the chemistry, which meant you did so well during the year, you didn't have to do yeah. the end of, end of year exams. But mm -hmm. I had to sit the end of year physics exam. And then gradually focused. Gra the Scottish universities tend to start very broad. Mm -hmm. It's four years to honours, unlike here where it's three. So you, you have slightly longer gradually specialised and eventually my degree was in physiology. Right. But that exposure to folks from other backgrounds was really kind of important and then see you at the university. It's interesting just picking up on what you're saying, that pivotal moment in your experience of being exposure to people from outside yeah. your immediate yeah. church fellowship. So when you're 14, 15, 16, that has a big impact on you. School had always been able to coast, basically, is what it amounts to. First and second year at university, not quite coast, but yeah, I wasn't, wasn't a great student in that sense. It was bigly into university, just not the studying yeah. bit of university. Um, and the stuff we didn't see, it was interesting, after I'd left, so I did my first degree and then my PhD mm. in neurobiology at Glasgow, and my first job, my first postdoc job was in Hull, and the pastor there, I had a conversation with him and his wife. They had been students in Durham in the 50s. And they said what struck me at the time was really sad. The fellowship they'd had as students in the Christian Union, they had never experienced anything like it ever since. And I knew exactly what they meant, but then it struck me that it's really sad mm. because there aren't any Christian unions in the Bible. Mm. Why can't I have that degree of fellowship and companionship and community in church. Um, and that's always kind of stuck with me. Um, and in fact, that's one of the things I've really appreciated about Bridge, particularly, and we'll come to this later on the day, the growth groups and the the closeness we get there. I mean, I've, we've been in two or three now, mm -hmm. and it's been brilliant. And just in case any of our current growth group are listening, it's brilliant. Just want to make that clear. <laughs> Otherwise, it'll give me a really hard time. Brilliant. So, you finish uni, postdoc, go to Hull. Hull's first postdoc job. Okay, and 
What about meeting Ruth? Where does that fit in? Not so yet. that comes a lot later. Okay. I was chairman so of the University hope? Bachelors Club. <laughs> there are still people who <laughs> are this, shocked. Is that an official thing? Uh, yeah, yeah. There are still people who are, well, it wasn't. Uh, well, no, it did exist. There are still people who are shocked that I am married with three children. <laughs> <laughs> Partly it was a, it was sort of a choice. It was, there, were, there was other stuff I wanted to do and yeah, girls were going to be a bit of a, an expense and a diversion. There was an element of that. I wouldn't yeah, want yeah. to overreg that. Yeah. No, I met Ruth. Uh, so uh, I'd gone to Hull. Yeah. And then uh, for various reasons, I was only in Hull for about nine months, but my boss got headhunted by Edinburgh. So within nine months, I was back in Edinburgh. That was a surprise. I had more culture shock in Edinburgh than I did in Hull. So Glasgow, Hull, Hull Edinburgh. Edinburgh. When, when in Edinburgh, I had decided I would finally learn French. I had done French at school, but we'd all just messed about. So I'd learned precious yeah. little French, but I'd always liked France. And then when I was, my first year in university, I'd done an Easter mission team in Paris and loved it and loved France. I always had a thing about France, don't know why. Yeah, I did French all level three times. <laughs> I got a D and then a D and then a U. <laughs> I don't know that I ever even did. I had swapped Latin for French because I knew Latin was much easier, you see much easier and I got a, a top A in Latin but that's because 55 60% of it was history mm. which I've always loved anyway we digress yeah I'd done that mission team in Paris in Paris about 79 I think that was and then decided to do something about learning French no it must have been later than that when I got to Edinburgh I joined the French Institute and started doing two hours French every Saturday morning and that was great for all sorts of reasons but the following summer, I decided I'd better go back to France and perpetrate some of my newly learned French on the natives. Mm. So I decided I'd go for a weekend in Paris, and then I would go on down and do a mission team in this little village called La Flèche, which is famous because it's where Descartes was educated mm -hmm. in the military school there. It's about 15, 20 miles from Le Mans, where they have the big race. Yeah. And partly the attraction was there was a missionary there, a guy called David Sutherland, who I had known for, for a while. He came from my patch in Scotland. He came from Helensburgh. So he's much posher than me. And he'd been working in a small church in La Flèche and they were hosting a mission team run by an organisation called Gospel Literature Outreach. So anyway, decided to go on that mission team. Now, unbeknownst to me, the Sutherlands worked with another couple called the Seeds, Jerry and Dorothy Seed. And Dorothy Seed is Ruth's cousin. And Ruth and her sister Sharon had decided to go and visit Cousin Dorothy and they thought, well, we'll stay on and we'll do the glow team as well. So we both pitched up to do this mission team and by the end of the second week, uh, you know, it was pretty clear we, were, we needed to have a conversation. Ruth claims she had decided that, you know, I would, we're going to go and have a talk about this.
marry an ugly woman because it would be good for my character. And I just looked at it and I thought, wow, that would do me. And I have to say, this is really good. She's, she's going to be throwing things now at the computer. <laughs> um, uh, uh, it's just been brilliant. Uh, she's a brilliant woman. Yeah. Uh, and she looks really good too. Let me tell you the story. Uh, no, I won't tell you the story. No, so, yeah, um, that was that mission team, and we were engaged the following New Year and married about a year after we met in the following August. And in living in Edinburgh? Living in Edinburgh, settled in Edinburgh in a church called Brunsfield, Brunsfield Evangelical, still there. Uh, actually, it was just a block away from where our Hannah ended up living in Edinburgh when she went to study there. Um, yeah, very happy. Again, a Brethren Assembly, open Brethren Assembly, but bigger than we were used to. So Ruth comes from really quite a conservative background, Northern Ireland. Um, uh, Brunsfield, uh, maybe about 100 people. Mm-hmm. So not big in bridge terms, but biggest church I'd ever been in. Sure. Um, but Brethren Assembly, so open worship, Sunday morning, family service, teaching the evening, that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Hated it. Did you? When I went to Brunsfield at first, for the first six months, I hated it. Uh, for a whole host of reasons, I think. I'd been really happy in Hull. It's, a, it, it's too long a story, but when I'd gone to Hull, I'd got into a very small evangelical church in a village called Cottingham, 12 people. We'd closed that church, amalgamated it with a big FIE, FIEC church down in the city called Trafalgar Street with a view to sending people back out. Mm-hmm. I was back preaching a couple of years later there were now 150 people meeting in Cottingham Evangelical and to be involved, again, to be involved in that, to see God at work, yeah. God working out his purposes, moving the pieces around in ways that for us were really painful, just uh, completely amazing. But to be involved in that was brilliant. And then I, I'd almost taken a step back in a funny way in Brunsfield. It was culture as well. Edinburgh is very different. From Glasgow. I mean, people compare it to Liverpool, Manchester thing. It's not really, because a lot of that's just pretend. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, the people aren't that different. Glasgow and Edinburgh, it's much stronger than that. And I'll tell you the thing that kept me going. It was a prayer triplet. Uh, going back to that thing I was saying earlier about, you know, the fellowship we had in the CU being really yep. close and something like that. Well, in Brunsfield, uh, I got into a prayer triplet with another couple of Christians. And every, it was either Monday or Tuesday mornings, we'd meet at seven and we'd chat and then we'd pray. And that revolutionized my Christian experience. One of them was a Christian counselor. And we would pray for their clients, mm-hmm. not by name. We wouldn't yeah, ever know the sure. names, but some of the situations. And I mean, it would make your, it made my toes curl, the stuff uh, that we're having to deal with. And I volunteered to do reception duty because they did a Thursday night session for people who worked. And praying for these situations, I thought these people with awful things going on in their lives must have spots or tails or horns. It must be obvious that they're really struggling with horrible, horrible things. And through the doors would come these completely ordinary-looking people, like the people I mix with every Sunday. Uh, And, you know, that taught me an important lesson. You just don't know what's going on. That that prayer triplet uh, really helped, and gradually the, the... I don't know what the issue was, the culture shock or whatever it was. He's, we're very happy in, in Brunsfield for eventually about six years. So we moved back to Glasgow in 90, about 96, 97. And the kids at this point? We had two, so 
two were born in Edinburgh. John and Hannah were born in Edinburgh. Daniel was born in Glasgow uh, when we were back in Glasgow. Uh, back to an assembly at Greenview Evangelical Church over on the south side of the city. Very happy there. Uh, brilliant church. A commitment to, which is quite unusual, I think. I might be talking out a ton here, but in assemblies these days, consecutive expository ministry is now quite unusual. But Greenview had a commitment to that, mm-hmm. working their way through scripture. I was kind of partly involved in delivering part of that. Brilliant church, very happy there, to the extent that Ruth didn't want to move. Right. Mind you, she didn't want to move from Edinburgh either. Yeah. So um, it, it was a bit of a wrench, and to come all this way, so this is 99 now, 1999. So that was just going to say, what what brings you then from being happy and settled, three kids back in Glasgow, kind of you're familiar with the whole mm-hmm. vibe, Liverpool is... Well, we thought it was a spiritual desert. We knew nothing about it. Apparently, there were people played football in Liverpool, but you know, you come from a city with Glasgow and Rangers, you really don't think there's football anywhere else. Yeah, it's not decent football. Um, so what brings you? Is it work? Well, it was entirely work. Um, so I had been a senior research fellow in Glasgow Caledonian University, uh, because they had an optometry department and an optometry clinic, and but then I'd moved away. I had been doing animal work, but I moved away from that to do work in people. Mm-hmm. But of course, I'm not a clinician. I'm a basic scientist. So I need clinicians of some description who Around are insured you. and uh, can do stuff on people. Um, and that had been the attraction there. But it was a bit... So it was a short-ish term contract. And we then had a difference of opinion about my worth to the organisation. Uh, and so I'd been looking for other jobs. I was interviewed in Bradford for a lectureship there. And uh, then the senior lectureship came up in Liverpool. And the advert was unusual because it mentioned my big thing, which is eye movement. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen that in a job advert before. So I applied, and then shortly after I applied and got the interview, my gallbladder exploded. Um, so this is quite unusual in men, youngish men in their 30s. My father had had it. Um, it's it's a, an issue that can affect older ladies, interestingly. And I ended up in hospital in Glasgow potentially really seriously ill. No way. And in fact, I'm probably only sitting here now because the prayer meeting at Greenview prayed that I would get on an operating list. Soon I, enough. That was the Thursday night. I got onto the Friday morning list Amazing. because there was a cancellation. And I thought I'd imagined this, but I remember lying on the table, the surgeon saying, and this is the quote, oh no, we'll have to open this one up. Because initially they intended to do it laparoscopically, so right. you're quite light. Yeah. But when they got laparoscope in, they discovered that it's my gallbladder was about to perforate. And had it perforated, that would have been, I mean, who knows, you know, 15 days in intensive care and then six months intensive rehab if I survived. So to this day, I'm, you know, that was an amazing answer to prayer for which I'm really grateful. I remember one of the elders came up to see me the next morning, I got some food. And I said to him, you know, look, you know, I'm really grateful that the church will pray. Um, but the other big lesson it taught me is if, if this life is all there is, it is not enough. It really is not enough. You just kind of live and work, and eventually bits of your body give out.
fruit shops because it did take a long time to recover from that it took two or three months and every afternoon Hannah would Hannah would be about two or three she's really small two or three she'd take me a walk and the walk always ended at the local pet shop took me a while to work that one out we resisted the temptation but I'd had to delay my interview in Liverpool and they very graciously said no that's fine we'll wait until you're wow. you're ready to come so I came down uh, overnight in the Adelphi Wow! wow well so the thing is there had been a Top TV notch. series about the Adelphi on the BBC I think it yeah, was yeah that's right yeah yeah. so it was the only hotel I knew about because we literally knew nothing about Liverpool you'd never been and of course Liverpool this is seven. this is 99 so Liverpool then still had a really big reputation yeah, problem. A bad one. For for most of yeah, us. Yeah. Um but interestingly there was a guy in Bridge called Robert Angus. Don't yeah, know if you remember yeah, Rob. Yeah, yeah. We had been at university together. We had been in the CU together. And I knew he was I a consultant down here. So I phoned him up and I asked him to describe Liverpool. And he said, Well, the easiest way to describe it is it's like Glasgow, but without the regeneration. <laughs> <laughs> now, okay, that might be a bit unfair. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, we came down after I got appointed. We came down a couple of weekends. John and Hannah stayed with my mum and dad. We brought Daniel because he was still a baby. We came down and stayed with Robert uh, and then went house hunting uh, in Liverpool. And in fact, we come back to Robert's in the evening and we'd sit down and we'd say, oh, we saw this house in such and such in an area. What's that area like? And then there was a house came up in Grose Road. And... Robert was able to tell us two things about Gros Road. Number one, it's within walking distance of Bridge, where he was coming at the time. Yeah. And number two, it was two doors down from Jeff and Jean Park. Yeah. Uh, now, funnily enough, we and had... And you still moved there? We, we did. <laughs> we, But we'd come to Liverpool with the Assembly's Address book. There's a, a book that, that lists all the Assemblies in the UK. And we'd come house hunting... With that in mind. With in mind, finding a house somewhere yep. where we knew there would be a, a good church. But good church really kind of meant Brelin Assembly. Yeah. That's what I meant to. Um, so, in fact, we, we went to Long Lane first. But we knew about Bridge because of Robert and because of Jeff and Jean yeah. uh, just up the road. I can't remember when we established contact with them. It must have been. We certainly knew about them uh, through Robert. Um, and either not long after we moved in or not long after we moved to Bridge because we started coming here about a year later. We were, of course, in their house having dinner and very grateful. And funnily enough, it, it, in those days, Hannah uh, used to work in town. So she used to drive to Cressington Station. She'll kill me for saying this. <laughs> she used to drive to Cressington Station from Grose Road. <laughs> so occasionally I would get a lift with her, particularly in the way back, which is quite nice, not yeah. having to, you know, trog up the road yeah. all those miles yeah, from Cressington uh, yeah. Station. Such a hard job. But the thing was, we knew that this house had <clears throat> Long Lane was within walking distance, a bridge was within walking distance, and the school was just sort of over the back because yeah. a lot of people we'd talked to had said, no, no, uh, Gilmer, um, infants and juniors, good schools. Mind you, that first year we were here and John had just started at school, John had maybe done a year in Scotland and then I, th I can't remember now if he was reception or year one at Gilmer. That was the year Gilmer got the really bad Ofsted report. Right. Or at least the executive summary read really badly. And I, as a new a parent with a shiny new child <sighs> in school, had to go to the crisis meeting. Yeah. 
Um, and actually, it wasn't as bad as the, the report made out. Uh, the kids were very grateful for people at Gilmore. Dot was there. Maria Williams was one of John's yeah, teachers yeah, early yeah. on. Um, lots of... Bridge connections. Bridge connections. Uh, so no complaints about the schools. Yeah. But yeah, that was a big transition because we, we didn't know a lot about this neck of the woods. But, you know, again, as other people have said in this series, God prepared the way. Mm. Uh, and, you know, there were challenges and church was part of that. You know, just with with hindsight on that point, just talk a little bit about, you know, there's we've, we've mentioned it, I think, nearly every week now about knowing God's will for your yeah. life. And there's a whole yeah. lot of stuff written that is like kind of almost mystical. and Yeah, it's not in the least bit mystical. No. So I'll give you I'll give you a number of examples. I remember after I'd finished my PhD, submitted my thesis, uh, was applying for jobs, I got the phone call from Hull offering me the job. And I remember I put the phone down and I went into my bedroom and I said, what do I do, Lord? Mm. And there was silence. <laughs> And I said to the Lord, well, um, you know, you've told me how I should live. You've set the parameters, and it seems to me that I need a job, and I've got a job offer. I take the job. It's no more mystical than that. Mm -hmm. So, Lord, I'm going to take this job. You confirm that this is the right thing to do. So I took the job in Hull. Knew, again, knew very little about Hull. Never been there, um, apart from the interview. Did I go to Hull for I must have gone for an interview. Anyway. Drove out of Glasgow on the Saturday to go down to Hull. I thought leaving Glasgow would be easy. I was a big, tough scientist. I had a PhD. Actually, as I drove over the what's called the Bayliss and Bypass, just not far from my mum and dad's house, there was a bit of a tear in my eye mm. because I, Glasgow was all I'd ever known. Yeah. Arrived in Hull on the Saturday. The university had put me in a student house in the studenty bit of Hull. There was a notice in the student house of a house church that met literally across the street I went across and knocked her door and said, I'm a Christian, I'm completely new here. They invited me in, had a cup of tea, was worshipping with them uh, the next day on the Sunday, went into work on the Monday, and halfway through the morning, the secretary came to get me. She said, there's somebody here to see you. I said, nobody knows, nobody knows me, nobody knows I'm here. She said, well, look, somebody's here to see yeah. you. So I went out to the office. The guy stood there. He said, hello, I'm Dr. Arthur Fraser from the geology department. I'm a Christian. We heard you were coming. I'd like to take you to lunch. I'll introduce you to some of the other Christians and staff. We can talk about churches and stuff. Incredible. And it had all been prepared. So that that was one. Um, the the incident in the hospital that I was mentioning. Yeah. Um, uh, just God's blessing. And then, you know, when we came here... Um, the house worked out, so so actually buying the house turned out to be a bit more protracted than we had thought. But eventually we got that house. Uh, eventually we found our way to Bridge. Been really blessed here. I don't think at any point God's ever written in big letters in the sky what I should do or what we should do as a mm -hmm. family. So have you navigated that? Yeah, I think you've alluded to it already. So I think you God sets his parameters in his word, and within that... He leaves us to work it out. And it's a funny notion of guidance that says... Here, showing you a man what is good. Yeah. What does the Lord require But it's a funny view of guidance that says God can only open doors or can only close doors. You do what seems... You pray about it. Mm -hmm. 
you say you, you'll go where he'll send you and you'll do what he wants you to do and then you do the sensible thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's a funny view that says he can't stop you doing bad stuff. That's usually not the problem. The problem usually is he tells us about the bad stuff and we do it anyway. Yeah, yeah. But um, the other thing I would say, particularly to younger people who are thinking about this whole issue of guidance, is sometimes as old folk make it sound like a plan. to think that there's a, a railway track and on this railway track there are points and if you take the wrong branch of the point forevermore you will be condemned to leading a second class existence outside of yeah it, it's not like that no. no we can go wrong in which is God who loves us disciplines us and seeks us to Come bring back. us back so yeah. you know we were talking earlier about Jonah classic yeah. example um, if Jonah had just done what God had told him to do there would be no fish. Yeah. But he didn't. And so God used extraordinary measures, but to bring him back into line, but he did it in love because he's a loving and gracious God. We, although we know that in our heads, we sometimes forget it. I mean, particularly as I'm not really a Calvinist, but you know, culturally I'm a bit of a Calvinist. You know, I'm, I think about the big stick, but actually my experience isn't that. It's of grace mm. and love and mm. mercy. Mm. And I mm. have no complaints. Mm. Um, but there was no plan. No. That I knew. Yeah. He had a plan. Correct, yeah. Amazing. That's really interesting. So as we kind of think about finishing, talk to us a little bit about parts of scripture maybe that have been with you on your journey. Yeah. Um, or that you've gone back to, and then maybe a couple of book recommendations yeah. if you've got any. So I guess three scriptures in particular, Jonah. I've always been fascinated by Jonah. Mm. Um Perpetrated sermons, in fact, I think I've been perpetrated sermons here on Jonah. I think there's so much in that story that I identify with. Um, it's a really interesting book. Ends with a question Should mm. I not be concerned? You know, and the challenge is, am I concerned about the things God's concerned about? So Jonah would be one. Colossians 3, I think Matt, was it Matt? Who mentioned Colossians yeah, 3? We nearly sang. Colossians 3 haunted me for a long time about the characteristics that you should see when you look at me. You know, and over everything else, put on love. That's that's not me. That's not my person personality. So my natural personality is quite spiky, and I've had to learn, and the Lord's had to teach me that that's not how I should be. Mm -hmm. So Colossians three would and set your minds absolutely. Uh, Philippians, um, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. And the fellowship of sharing in the suffering. So somehow 
uh, you know, that, that verse has, has been another big influence. And then the other thing I would say is Luke 24, the two in the road to Emmaus. Mm -hmm. I think there's lots of really interesting things going on there. Why didn't they recognize Jesus? Mm. I think there's partly a psychological answer to that. I don't have time to get into it. But I think there's other things going on. But just that almost Jesus weaning them off his physical presence. But what's he weaning them on to? Mm. He's weaning on them on to what we've got today. Yeah, sure. Scripture, yeah. beginning with Moses and the prophets, no prophets yeah. beginning with the bits of the Bible we don't like. Um, uh, you know, the bit that's in the clean bit of our Bible. If you look at the edge of your Bible, you can see all the used pages. And for most of us, the used pages are all in the second, the last third, in yeah, fact. Yeah. And Jesus takes us to the bits of the Bible we find. He says, look, here I am. In all of it. Yeah, in all of it. And, you know, what do they say? Did not our hearts burn mm. within us? Mm. Boy, to have been a Bible study like that, that would have been, that would have been amazing. Um, and I think there's a lot in that whole passage. Gets, as you know, it's good evangelicals with lots of knowledge. Mm. They had lots of knowledge. They knew everything. Mm. They knew the tomb was empty. They knew the woman had seen angels who told right. them that Jesus was alive. And they were miserable. Yeah. Knowledge is important, but it's not enough. You know, that that encounter with with the Lord and his word, I think, so that, that passage has always been a big influence on me. And then books-wise, yeah, I was thinking about this because obviously you always end up with, with book recommendations. So I'm a great reader. I'm a very eclectic reader. Uh, my growth group have never let me forget that I took to a growth group weekend a book called, um, oh, what's it called now? When Times Last Sand, it's a one-volume history of the Bank of England from 1693. <laughs> <laughs> um, it sounds incredible. Uh, it's really interesting. Anyway, let's not go there. Um, I'm not recommending that. Alistair McGrath's biography of C.S. Lewis, mm. very interesting. Yeah, uh, I like McGrath. Um, uh, read that. That was my, I think that was my first pandemic read actually. Right. Uh, going back to sort of February. Another really influential book I only came across relatively recently, The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. No, I've heard of him yet. Discovering Not, God's Will, he wrote. Yeah, he's written lots. He was, when I was a student, he was the assistant minister at St. George's Tron uh, with Eric Alexander. Um, so our path didn't quite cross because I didn't go to the Tron because it was a touch of Scotland and therefore beyond the pale. Sorry, did I say that out loud? Um, but... Um, the whole Christ. Uh, it's it starts with a an eighteenth century Scottish Presbyterian theological debate. It sounds really dry and horrible, but it's really about the gospel and beyond that the character of God. And it made me think a lot about well, to be honest, about some of the preaching I've done. So coming from a background that I come from, did a lot of preaching in Scotland, but away a couple of Sundays a month. I'm now embarrassed about some of the things I must have said, mm. uh, particularly around the gospel, because I don't mm. think, you know, there's that comment, Matt Lloyd-Jones, if you don't preach the gospel so that people accuse you of being an antinomian, you're not preaching grace properly. Uh, you have to be careful with that particular quote, but I think I, there have been times when I've preached a gospel works. You, you repent to be saved. Mm. No, you don't. You're not capable of doing anything before you're saved. You're dead. That's the point of being dead. In fact, if you're dead, you don't even know you're dead. Mm. And until God breaks in, mm. 
you're, you're not capable of anything. There's nothing you can do to pre-qualify. You know, it's not that you have to be a bit interested in Jesus to get saved. It just, it's just not like that. Yeah. And the whole Christ sort of teases out that and teases out the tension between legalism on the one hand and antinomianism on the other. And it sounds really dry. Mm. And it, it is quite a hard read, but very useful. And in fact, I'm rereading it now. It just reminds me of, of the Ezekiel picture of the just... The, yeah. of, the, of the bones and the need for the breath the, of God, the need for the the, the word yeah. and the spirit, yeah. working and, together to bring life. And just that idea that grace breaks in, and there's nothing we do to merit that. We can do nothing. We're not even aware of it because we're dead. Yeah. And that's the point about being dead, and just that fundamental transformation that comes about uh, through grace by faith, and so on. Um, very useful, just teasing out that. In fact, the, the other thing that's been really good is Northwest Scotsmore Partnership. That Which you've, you've just done, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're doing, we're coming towards the end of year two now, and a bunch of bridge folk did it mm-hmm. year one last year. We, there was a classic night where uh, a guy put up a series of things, you know, repentance, faith, conversion, call, the order salutis, essentially, the order of salvation, and asked us to put it in the logical order it should have. And actually, there's quite a long discussion about it where there really shouldn't have been. And it was just, it's just been brilliant. And spending that time in, in yeah. scripture and the bits of scripture that, you know, so I've got to do a talk on job chapter three, just job chapter three. So that's where job really begins his complaint. Yeah. It's unmitigated, horrible suffering. And, you know, if somebody asked me to go somewhere and preach, I'd never pick job chapter three. But then I would never have picked Joel's prophecy either. And go back to Luke 24, I think the apostles really took that to heart. So Peter on the day of Pentecost. Yes. He preaches that amazing sermon on Joel, Mm. on the Psalms, again, on bits of scripture we don't, you know, we we don't, we like the Old Testament, but not that much. And what happens? 3,000 people get saved. Yeah. Uh, I think they learned a lesson that this is about sharing Christ. And the other big thing about uh, Sinclair Ferguson's book is the whole business of it's Christ we're sharing. You cannot detach the benefits of the gospel from the person that it's all about. And then once you're a believer, the whole idea that you cannot detach the business of being a believer from him. It's about being in him. It's about Mm -hmm. that. So a lot of this is... Kind of, we've touched this in Northwest Gospel Partnership. It's been brilliant, and spending that time in the scriptures as well, and maybe a more concentrated way. And the things, the things I've discovered. You know, somebody's read the Bible for years. I mean, just again, just even just learning to read it properly, yeah. not reading what I think it says, but actually reading yeah, what it actually says. It's been brilliant. It's a revelation. Somebody in Bridge said to Ruth when they had last year on hand was, "What is Paul doing Northwest Gospel Partnership for?" What can he possibly have to learn? Now, thanks very much for the compliment. But, I mean, it, it's just been a complete, to get back into Scripture. I mean, not that I wasn't into Scripture, but just... But to come at it as a student, almost. Yeah. It's just and be exposed brilliant. to it in that sense is it's a little bit brilliant. different, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, Brad, that seems like a sensible place to stop. So, thanks very much for coming in. Thanks for your time. Not at all. Thanks for the biscuits. <laughs> You're welcome. You can take them with you. Well, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Bridge Podcast. If you've got comments, suggestions or questions for us, please feel free to send them in to podcast.bridgechapel.co.uk and we'll respond to all those emails and try and incorporate any suggestions into future shows. 
to get as many people as possible to hear this podcast, if you like and subscribe to it on your podcast provider, that will really help. So thanks again. Hope you enjoyed this episode and look forward to you joining us next week on the Bridge Podcast.